Welcome to The Rabbit Room. I'm Andrew Peterson. For more information about the songs, writers, and artists featured here, please visit rabbitroom.com. Rabbit Room theme song composed and performed by Ben Shive. One of the finest things about Christmas is packed into one word, anticipation. If I were a theologian, I bet I could write a whole mess of pages about anticipation in Scripture, from abstinence before marriage to the second coming. Also, if I were a theologian, I probably wouldn't call it a mess of pages, but a thesis or an essay or whatever. Anyway, for children, of course, anticipation, maddening though it is, fills the days leading up to Christmas morning like no other time of the year. They want their presence. We wrap them up and lay them under the tree to sparkle and to deepen their anticipation. The same could be said for the prophets and the astute Jews who knew a Messiah would come to the rescue of Israel. There in the scripture, those promises of a coming king lay wrapped in mystery. Mysterious prophecies that the scribes and priests and teachers of the law inspected, turned over and shook. The Old Testament anticipates the new. Advent wasn't a part of my family's vocabulary when I was a boy. My dad had an old menorah, a candelabrum with seven candles, and he lit each one along with a family devotion on the seven days leading up to Christmas. That was as close as we came, and it was beautiful. It's good to have something intentional to mark the days, to make them different from the rest of the year, something tangible to illumine our faces and draw all eyes in the room to one point of light as we think on things wonderful and true, as we think on the story on which our best hopes rest. Early in the Old Testament, God told his people to tell and retell to their children the story of how he saved them from slavery in Egypt. With this command to be lifelong storytellers, we are reminded that while our redemption in Christ is very much set in doctrinal truths, these truths are anchored in an amazing and true tall tale. The aim of Russ's series of Advent meditations this year will be to tell some of those stories from the Old Testament which point to the need for and promised coming of Christ. For the next few episodes of the Rabbit Room podcast, We'll be hearing those Advent writings from Russ Ramsey, Rabbit Room contributor and pastor at Oak Hills Presbyterian Church in Overland Park, Kansas. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love him. Love him with all your heart with all your soul, with all your might. Since just after the exodus from Egypt, the people of Israel began their worship with these words, known as the Shema, the Hebrew word for hear. But this wasn't some detached decree to render affection to an unknown deity. This was a command to remember a story. They were to rehearse in their minds and in their hearts and in their homes this story, their story. It was a story still unfolding, but well enough underway to know that the Lord, their God, was one in number and was one in nature and that the only proper way to respond to his dealings with them was to love him with everything that they had and with everything that they were.
And this was different. At that time, most of the world bowed in worship to a host of idols and spirits, each with the power to bless or to curse. And under this plan of appeasing these gods in order to coax from them their favor while keeping their fury at bay, the entire pagan world had fashioned a tapestry of religious observance, interweaving the warp of the moods and demands of the gods with the woof of the tributes and rituals of man. The people lived in fear of these gods who could lavish great prosperity on their households but could also scorch the earth beneath their feet. But these were not Israel's God. The nature of Israel's God was definite. His character immutably fixed. And the only reasonable response to this God was to love him. And this wasn't just lore either. This was history, an unbroken chain of actions and consequences, one following the other, weaving together a, blinding, a binding blend of narrative and law that said, if this is the nature of your God, Love him with everything that you have and everything that you are. The people of Israel were to be a people of this law. And they were to nail this law to the doorposts of their homes that they might remember it in their comings and in their goings. They were to bind it to their arms that it might guide them whatever work they set their hands to. They were to lash it to their foreheads that it might be the focus of every conversation and every face-to-face -face relationship that they knew. And they were never to depart from it, this harmony of story and statute. They were to take it and they were to teach it to their families. They were to recount the mighty deeds of their almighty God, never stopping until this story was so ingrained at their children, in their children that they would be able to tell it when they had children of their own, that they would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love him with everything that you have, with your heart, your soul, and all your might. Now this relational response of love to a singular omnipotent God was so gloriously uncommon in those days that it must have sounded to many like a tall tale, and it was, and it is, only it is a true tall tale. Woven together through this story is shadow. You find wrath greed, lust, gluttony, sloth, envy, and pride together in force with all their consequences. But shooting through that darkness shines the bright rays of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Will darkness prevail in the end? Or will light overcome the darkness? This is a story of people living in this in-between place of wandering and homecoming, in between transgression and grace. And every mortal being in this story needs rescue, but they have all turned aside. There is none who does good, not even one. 
Still, after clearing away all the layers of intrigue and conflict and suspense, this tale is not ultimately a story about mere mortals. This is a story of divine love. The law of the Lord is a love story. It is the story of the one true God calling a people his beloved, though for their part they had only lived in perpetual rebellion against him. They were not meant to live this way, but still they did. And though their lives were a ruin of their own making, the Lord God swore a covenant oath to redeem them. Everything wrong with the world he would put right. He would remove their hearts of stone and give them hearts of flesh, putting a new spirit within them, and he would never, ever, ever, ever stop loving them. To understand why God would keep such a people and love them with such a perfect, patient love, Ultimately, redeeming them in the end, one must go all the way back, all the way back to the beginning of this story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And from the heavens, he lit up the earth and he set it spinning into a rhythm of illuminated days and shadowy night. He separated the sky from the sea and the sea from the land and he made the earth fertile, filling it with trees bowing and vines sagging and stalks bending under the weight of their fruit and grain. And then he filled the sky and the earth and the sea with swarms of living creatures, beasts of a million herds roaming the land, birds of a million colors filling the sky, creatures of a million shapes teeming in the depths of the oceans. And it was all very good. But God wasn't finished. He saved the best for last. In concert with his son, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the face of the earth. And so he did. God created man. And seeing that it wasn't good for man to be without a mate, he created woman. And together the man and the woman were different from everything else that God had made. Everything else the maker had created, he did so according to his imagination. But mankind he made according to his own image and his own likeness. And he gave mankind dominion over creation. And he charged them with the responsibility of caring for the earth. But this was not what set mankind apart from the rest of creation. What set humanity apart was the relationship with God the man and the woman were created to know and enjoy forever. And for a while, this is exactly what they did. In the cool of the day, the first man and the first woman walked with their God in the garden that he had designed for them, and they were naked, and they were unashamed, and all was right with the world. Eden was theirs to enjoy every part, except for one tree in the middle, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God warned them, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now this was before death had entered the world. 
But before long, the tempter came in the form of a serpent, and he questioned the woman on this matter. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? No, that, that wasn't what God had said. They could eat from any tree they wished except one, she explained. And on the day they ate of that tree, God told them they would surely die. Up until this moment, mockery and deceit were unknown to the man and woman. Every word spoken so far had been as honest as it was earnest. But there in the garden, the serpent spoke a sentence subtle and slow, setting up a slippery slope of uncertainty and suspicion. You will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. And the woman reached for the fruit and saw that it did look good for eating. And she raised it to her lips and she took a bite. And her husband did too. And though they couldn't hear it as they broke the surface of the fruit, all of creation groaned. Lust, shame, fear, guilt, mistrust, and blame shifting rushed into their hearts as if, and as if waking from a deep sleep, they saw for the first time that they were naked and it was humiliating. So they made coverings for themselves out of fig leaves. The first lovers believed the first lie and woke to the first moments of shame and they were wrecked. Was there redemption amidst the wreckage? When God came walking in the garden in the cool of the day, the man and the woman did something else that they had never done before. They hid. And God found them hiding and clothed. And he told, they told him what they'd done, how the serpent deceived them. Still, it was they who took the fruit and broke the only law that God had given. And this broke them, and they couldn't undo it. If they were to be put right with God, God himself would have to be the one to do it. Would they die? If so, would death ever again be defeated? God's response in that moment would tell the tale. God spoke an ominous word of finality to the deceiver. One will come from the woman, and though this serpent would strike away at his heel, this one would crush his head. It was an image that was rich in irony. The scheme of the deceiver to destroy the offspring of the woman would end in the devil's own defeat. The serpent would nip at this man's heel only to end up crushed and powerless beneath the weight of it. And then to the man and woman, God said, as for you, life will be hard. They would have children. They would begin to fill the earth and their descendants would be numbered like the stars, but every last one of them would struggle in some measure from the cradle to the grave, heirs to their first parents' sin, 
coming into this world would be a struggle. Living in this world would be a struggle. Leaving this world would be a struggle. Would it ever end? Would the offspring of the woman that the Lord spoke of be an actual person? Would he overcome the deceiver? Would he overcome the world? Well, generations later, centuries deep into this unfolding true tall tale, Israel would enter into worship to the reminder that the Lord is their God. He's theirs. They don't possess him. They have no power to contain him. He possesses them, this God who is one, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the fact that they remain under his covenant promise as recipients of his law tells them God has not left them to perish in their sins. And if God hasn't left them to perish in their sins, then surely the reason is because he means to deliver them from it. Maybe light will overcome the darkness when the offspring of the woman crushes evil's head as the snake strikes at his heel. As the parents tell this story of the faithfulness of God, eventually they return to this question of this man and this woman standing there awkward in their fig leaves. What would come of them? What happened next? What about their hiding? What about their shame? The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This had never been done before either. The death of an innocent to cover the shame of the guilty. Only it wasn't the man or the woman who shed the blood to make the covering. It was the Lord God who covered them. It was the Lord God who covered them. And this was just the beginning. <laughs> 